Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from Charles Spurgeon's uh, sermons on the sovereignty of God. We're actually about the end of that uh, series. This one's called Sovereignty, and it was preached on April 11th, 1858 at the Music Hall, Royal Surrey Gardens, London, England. His text is Matthew 10.30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. During this week, my mind has been much directed to the subject of providence, and you will not wonder when I relate a portion of one day's story. I was engaged to preach last Wednesday at Halifax, where there was a heavy snowstorm. Preparations had been made for a congregation of 8,000 persons, and a huge wooden structure had been erected. I considered that, owing to the severe weather, a few persons could possibly assemble, and, and I looked forward to the dreary task of addressing an insignificant handful of people in a vast place. However, when I arrived, I found from 5,000 to 6,000 people gathered to hear the word. And a more substantial-looking place it has not been my lot to see. It certainly was a huge, uncomely building, but nevertheless it seemed well adapted to answer the purpose. We met together in the afternoon and worshipped God, and again in the evening, and we separated to our homes, or, or rather we were about to separate. And all this while the kind providence of God was watching over us. Immediately in front of me there was a huge gallery, which looked an exceedingly massive structure, capable of holding 2,000 persons. This in the afternoon was crowded, and it seemed to stand as firm as a rock. Again in the evening there it stood, and neither moved nor shook. But mark the provident hand of God. In the evening, when the people were about to retire, and when there were scarcely more than a hundred persons there, a huge beam gave way, and down came a portion of the flooring of the gallery with a fearful crash. Now, several persons were precipitated with the planks, but still the good hand of God watched over us, and only two persons were severely injured with broken legs, which it is trusted will be reset without the necessity of amputation. Now, had this happened any earlier, not only must have many more have been injured, but there are a thousand chances to one, as we say, that a panic must necessarily have ensued similar to that which we still remember and deplore as having occurred in this place. Had such a thing occurred, and had I been the unhappy preacher on the occasion, I feel certain that I should never have been able to occupy the pulpit again. Such was the effect of the first calamity, that I marvel that I have ever survived. No human tongue can possibly tell what I experienced. The Lord, however, graciously preserved us. The fewness of the people in the gallery prevented any such catastrophe, and thus a most fearful accident was averted. But... We have a more marvelous providence still to record. Overloaded by the immense weight of snow which fell upon it, and beaten by a heavy wind, the entire building fell 
with an enormous crash three hours after we had left it, splitting the huge timbers into shivers and rendering very much of the material utterly useless for any future building. Now mark this. Had the snow begun three hours earlier, the building must have fallen upon us. And how few of us would have escaped, we cannot guess. But mark another thing. All day long it thawed so fast that the snow, as it fell, seemed to leave a mass not of white snow, but of snow and water together. This ran through the roof upon us, due to our considerable annoyance. And I was almost ready to complain that we had hard dealing from God's providence, but if it had been a frost instead of a thaw, you can easily perceive that the place must have fallen several hours beforehand. And then your minister and the greater part of his congregation would probably have been in the other world. Some there may be who deny providence altogether. I cannot conceive that there were any partakers of the scene who could have done so. This I know. If I had been an unbeliever to this day in the doctrine of the supervision and wise care of God, I must have been a believer in it at this hour. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. He hath been very gracious unto us, and remembered us for good. Now, when we look abroad into the world, we see, as we think, such abundant proof that there is a God that we are apt to treat a man who denies the existence of a God with very little respect or patience. We believe him to be willfully blind, for we see God's name so legible upon the very surface of creation that we cannot have patience with him if he dares to deny the existence of a creator. And in the matter of salvation, we have, each of us, seen in our own salvation such positive marks of the Lord's dealings with us that we are apt to be somewhat censorious and harsh towards any who propound a doctrine which would teach salvation apart from God. And I think we shall be very apt this morning to think hardly of the man who, having seen and heard of such a providence as to that which I have just related, I could fail to see God's hand. It seems to me that the hand of God in providence is as clear as in creation. And whilst I am sure that if saved at all, I must be saved by God, I feel equally certain that every matter which concerns all of us in daily life, bears upon itself the evident trace of being the handiwork of Jehovah, our God. We must, if we would be true believers in God and would avoid all atheism, give unto him the kingship in the three kingdoms of creation, grace, and providence. It is in the last, however, that I think we are the most apt to forget him. We may easily see God in creation if we be at all enlightened. And if saved, we cannot avoid confessing that salvation is of the Lord alone. The very way in which we are saved and the effect of grace in our hearts always compels us to feel that 
God is just. But providence is such a checkered thing, and, and you and I are so prone to misjudge God and to, to come to rash conclusions concerning his dealings with us that perhaps this is the greatest stronghold of our natural atheism, a doubt of God's dealings with us and the arrangements of outward affairs. This morning I shall not be able to go deeply into the subject, but very heartily can I enter into it after being so great a partaker of his wonder-working power. From the text I shall draw one or two points. First of all, the text says, The very hairs of our head are all numbered. From this I shall infer the minuteness of providence. Again, inasmuch as it is said of believers that the hairs of their heads are all numbered, I shall infer the kind consideration, the generous care, which God exercises over Christians. And then from the text and from our Savior's reason for uttering these words, I shall draw a practical conclusion of what should be the, the spirit and temper of the men who believe this truth, that the very heads of their heads are all numbered. First, then, our text very clearly teaches the minuteness of providence. Every man can see providence in great things. It is very seldom that you find any person denying that when an avalanche falls from the summit of the Alps, the hand, the terrible hand of God, is there. There are very few men who do not feel that God is present in the whirlwind and in the storm. Most men will acknowledge that the earthquake, the hurricane, the, the devastation of war, the ravages of pestilence come from the hand of God. We find most men very willing to confess that God is God of the hills, but they forget that he is also Lord of the valleys. They will grant that he deals with great masses, but not with individuals, and with seas in the bulk, but not with drops. Most men forget, however, that the, the fact which they believe of providence being in great things involves a providence in the little, for it were an inconsistent belief that the mass were in God's hand while the atom was left to chance. It is indeed a belief that contradicts itself. We must believe all chance or else all God. He must have all ordained and arranged or else we must have everything left to the wild whirlwind of chance and accident. But I believe that it is in little things that we fail to see God. <clears throat> Therefore, it is to the little things that I call your attention this morning. I believe my text means literally what it says. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. God's wisdom and knowledge are so great that he even knows the number of the hairs upon our head. His providence descends to the minute particles of dust in the summer gale. He numbers the gnats in the sunshine and the fishes in the sea. While it certainly doth control the massive orbs that shine in heaven, it doth not blush to deal with the drop that trickles from the eye. Now, I, I shall want you to notice how little circumstances of daily life, when we come to put them all together, evidently betray their origin. I will take a scripture history and show how the little events must have been of God. 
as well as the great results that when Joseph was sent into Egypt by his brethren in order to provide for them against a day of famine, we all agree with Joseph's declaration, it was God that sent me hither. But now, if we notice each of the little ways through which this great result was brought to pass, we shall see God in each of them. One day Joseph's brethren are gone out with the sheep. Jacob wants to send to them. Why does he send Joseph? He was his darling son. He loved him better than all his brethren. Why does he send him away? But he sends him. Then why should it have happened at that particular time that Jacob should want to send at all? However, he did want to send. And he did send Joseph. A mere accident, you say. But quite necessary as the basement of the structure. So Joseph goes. His brethren are in want of pasture, and therefore they leave Shechem, where Joseph expected to find them. And they journey on to Dothan. Why go to Dothan? Wasn't the whole land before them? However, Joseph goes there. He arrives at Dothan just when they are thinking of him and his dreams. And they put him into a pit. As they are about to eat bread, some Ishmaelites came by. Why did they come there at all? Why did they come at that particular time? Why were they going to Egypt? Why might they not have been going any other way? Why was it that the Ishmaelites want to buy slaves? Why might they not have been trading some other commodity? However, Joseph is sold. But he is not disposed of on the road to Egypt. He's, he's taken to the land. Why is it that Potiphar is to buy him? Why is it that Potiphar has a wife at all? Why is it again that Potiphar's wife should be so full of lust? Why should Joseph get into prison? How is it that the baker and the butler should offend their master? <laughs> all chance, as the world has it but every link necessary to make the chain. They do both offend their master. They are both put into prison. How is it that they both dream? How is it that Joseph interprets the dream? How is it that the butler forgets him? Why, just because if he had recollected him, it would have spoiled it all. Why is it Pharaoh dreams? How can dreams be under the arrangement of God's providence? However, Pharaoh does dream. And the butler then thinks of Joseph. Joseph is brought out of prison and taken before Pharaoh. But take away any of those simple circumstances, break any one of the links of the chain, and the whole of the design is scattered to the winds. You can't get the machine to work. If any of the minute cogs of the wheels are taken away, everything is disarranged. I think it seems very clear to any man who will dissect not only that, but any other history that he likes to fix upon, that there must be a God in the little accidents and dealings of daily life, as well as the great results that tell upon the pages of history and are recounted in our songs. God is to be seen in little things. 
We will now notice in the minutiae of providence how punctual providence always is. You will never wonder more at providence than when you consider how well God keeps time with himself. Uh, to return to our history, how is it that the Ishmaelites should come by just at that time? How many thousand chances there were that their journey might have been taken just before? There certainly was no special train to call at that station at that particular time so that Joseph's brethren might arrange to go and call him. No, no such thing. And yet, if there had been all this arrangement, it could not have happened better. Now, you know Reuben intended to fetch Joseph out of the pit half an hour later, and the child was not. God had these Ishmaelites ready. You do not know how he may have sped them on their journey or delayed them so as to bring them on the spot punctually at the identical moment. Uh, another instance, there is this poor woman whose son had been raised from the dead by Elisha. She had left her country at the time of famine and had lost her estate. She wanted to get it back. God determined that she should have it well, how is it to be done? The king sends for Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, and he talks to him. He tells him one instance about a woman who had had a child raised from the dead. How strange! In comes the woman herself. My lord, this is the woman. She comes to obtain her suit. Her desire is granted, just because at the very moment... The king's mind is interested concerning her. All chance, was it not? Nothing but chance. So fools say. But those who read Bibles and those who have judgment say there is something more than chance in such a coalition of circumstances. It could not be a mere coincidence, as men sometimes say. There must be God here. <clears throat> For it is harder to think that there is not God, than that there is. And whilst a, a belief in God may be said by some to involve a great stretch of faith, the putting him out of such things as this would involve an infinitely greater amount of credulity. No, there was God there. Now, there's another instance that I remember in the New Testament history. Paul goes into the temple. The Jews rush upon him in a moment to kill him. They drag him out of the temple, and the doors are shut against him. They're just in the very act of killing him. And what is to become of poor Paul's life? Five minutes longer, Paul will be dead, when up comes the chief captain and delivers him. How was it that the chief captain knew of it? Very probably some young man of the crowd who knew Paul and loved him ran to tell him, but, but why was it that the chief captain was at home? How was it that the ruler was able to come on a moment's emergency? How was it that he did come at all? It was only just a Hebrew, a, a man that was good for nothing, being killed. How was it that he came, and, and when he came the streets were full, there was a mob about Jerusalem? How did he come to the right street? How did he come at the exact nick of time? You say, well, it's all chance, and I laugh at you. <laughs> it is providence. 
If there be anything in the world that is plain to any man that thinks, it is plain that God overrules all mortal things, as the poet says, and manages our mean affairs. But mark that the running of the youth and his arrival at the precise time, and the coming of the chief governor at the precise time, just proved the punctuality of divine providence. And if God has a design that a thing shall happen at twelve, if you have appointed it for eleven, it shall not happen till twelve. And if he means it to be delayed till one, it is in vain that you propose any earlier or any later. God's punctuality in providence is always sure and very often apparent. But nor is it only the the minutes of time that we get an idea of the minuteness of providence, but it is in the use of little things. A sparrow has turned the fate of an empire. You remember the old story of Mohammed flying from his pursuers? He enters a cave, and a sparrow chirps at the entrance and flies away as the pursuers pass. Oh, they say, there's no fear that Mohammed is there. Otherwise, the bird would have gone a long time ago. The impostor's life is saved by a sparrow. We think perhaps that God directs the motions of the Leviathan, guides him in the sea when he makes the deep to be hoary. Will we please to recollect that the guidance of a minnow in its tiny pool is as much in the hand of providence as the motion of the great serpents in the depths. You see the birds congregate in the autumn, ready for their flight across the purple sea. They fly hither and thither in strange confusion. The believer in providence holds that the wing of every bird has stamped upon it the place where it shall fly, and fly with never such vagaries of its own wild will. It cannot diverge so much as the millionth part of an inch from its predestinated track. Oh, it may whirl about, above, beneath, east, west, north, south, wherever it pleases. Still, it is all according to the providential hand of God. And although we see it not, it may be that if that swallow did not take the precise track which it does take, something a little greater might be affected thereby. And again, something a little greater still might be affected until at last a great thing would be involved in a little. Blessed is that man who seeth God in, in trifles. It is there that it is the hardest to see him, but he who believes that God is there may, uh, may go from the little providence up to the God of providence. Rest assured, when the fish in the sea take their migration, they have a captain and a leader, as well as the stars. For he who marshals the stars in their courses and guides the planets in their march is the master of the fly. <laughs> and he wings the bat and guides the minnow and, and doth not despise the tiniest of his creatures. You, you say there is predestination in the path of the earth? You believe that in the shining of the sun there is the ordinance of God? There is as much his ordinance in the creeping of an insect or in the flimmering of a glow-worm in the darkness. Uh, in nothing is there chance, but in everything 
there is a God. All things live and move in Him and have their being. Nor could they live or move otherwise, for God hath so ordained them. Amen. We've got to stop halfway through this message right here, where an argument is going to come against Mr. Spurgeon. Sir, you seem to be a fatalist. I will answer that next time around. Just love Charles Spurgeon. I know you do too. Please come back and hear the end of this message next time around. Those who are with me every day, and I hope that that's a lot of you in the future too, uh, will want to stay with us towards the end of this week. And it's uh, the 17th of May as you hear this today. Later on in this week, we'll be getting back to Ezekiel. And we'll start reading part four as I'm about halfway through doing part five. I, I get all confused where I am in the book, but the whole book is so wonderful. Um, but we're going to finally get past all these judgments after part four. But we've got to do part four first as God judges not only Israel, but all the nations surrounding Israel back in those days. We'll talk about it another time. Meanwhile, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we will talk soon. Bye-bye.